الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد Yesterday we covered tawakkul which was a section or chapter the seventh principle in the praiseworthy traits from al-arba'in fi usul din So just to recap from yesterday we talked uh, Imam Ghazali rahimahullah he mentions that there are many verses in the Quran that talk about tawakkul and we're all familiar with it uh, many times in the Quran it's referenced and in fact in conversation this is one of those things that often comes up you know tawakkul ala Allah you know have reliance in Allah it's actually commonplace for a believer to to share with one another especially when you want someone to be consoled you'll say this he talked about the reliance of it and how it really exists in this principle of tawheed which is the oneness of Allah and a person who wants to understand what reliance is is basically appreciating that there is a one Allah and he is the doer and cause of every single thing we talked about the different degrees of this one degree the lowest degree being that you attribute something to the, you know the uh, attribute something to Allah so you accept the fact that uh, this happened because of Allah and you leave it at that and the middle tier being that you accept that there's multiple causes for everything but each cause eventually leads to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then the highest tier is that you appreciate that Allah Ta'ala's you appreciate that um, those steps in between uh, they are simply an extension of Allah Ta'ala's oneness um, and so it's as if you're looking at uh, one rather than multiple parts okay so this is just a recap so we explained this in detail yesterday I'm just recapping so just to jog our memory um, we talked about how um, Allah Ta'ala has created this perfect system, this perfect universe and uh, we wouldn't be able to add or subtract or contribute to the universe in any way if we were to be given the knowledge and wisdom to do so um, Allah Ta'ala basically he challenges the believer to try but we, we wouldn't be able to even if we tried uh, we talked about how Allah Ta'ala is our uh, wakil and just like you would trust an attorney in this world to defend you and support you and protect you more or less uh, Allah Ta'ala is the best that there's no greater wakil than him so he is the true being that should be relied upon and then lastly we talked in detail about um, this idea that okay with reliance that kind of gives this sense of um, of ab abstaining from participating in this world because if Allah Ta'ala is uh, the one to rely on he'll take care of me then I don't really have any responsibilities I can just sit and do nothing Imam Ghazali has this entire section that we covered in detail yesterday about how this is actually ignorance and the sunnah of Allah Ta'ala is that a person has to take action and they put tawakkul in Allah Ta'ala that everything is from Allah Ta'ala but the action is done because it's from the sunnah of the Prophet and from the sunnah of how Allah Ta'ala designed this world so you have to exert an effort it's not that you can sit back relax and, and essentially do nothing um, and then actually the, the final point we covered was about how everybody has their own strengths or their own potential let's say so depending on your current individual state that's the degree that you should exert yourself in general when it comes to deen so we talked about how you shouldn't overexert yourself if you're not yet at that state of iman or not, not yet that at that state of taqwa for certain matters. So if you're tired, then you should sleep rather than try to excessively worship your nawafil and things like that. So there were two points that I wanted to bring that I I didn't uh, that I want to actually bring up today with regard with regards to tawakkul just to help clarify. The first thing was that you know we talked about um, 
how Abu, Imam Ghazali rahimahullah was saying that you know if you are basically traveling to a place where there are weeds or there's a place where the people are passing by then and only then if you have basically a high state of iman it'd be okay for you to go there without any provisions right now this was the example he used we basically applied that to if we're traveling for instance right and then i mentioned also that but if you have a low level of iman then it's incorrect for you to do that you actually have to travel with provisions even if you are in areas where there are weeds that you can potentially eat or even if there are people that can potentially help you do we recall that conversation okay so I had said something, and I don't want to make uh, I don't want people to attribute it the wrong way. Now, then I, we brought up the example of Abu Bakr radiAllahu anhu, who had actually uh, given all of his wealth for the sake of Allah. And yesterday, I said that it was because it was in the context of the community, right? That it was a community that if he needed support, he would get support. I don't I didn't mean to convey that because Abu Bakr radiAllahu anhu's maqam and his iman is at such a high level that we can't even restricted in any way shape or form and say that oh it was because of the community i mean his iman was so high and the ulama can elaborate on this further that he, he wasn't even dependent on the community so his station is different the rules that we mentioned yesterday don't necessarily apply to abu Bakr so if that came across incorrectly then uh this is the clarification for that okay so we apply it to ourselves people with low iman people with very high stations of iman but abu Bakr's iman is greater than the iman of the entire ummah so we're not even going to say that we're not going to comment on on what he can and cannot do or should or shouldn't do or why he did what he did okay the second thing i wanted to mention is that tawakkul you know we covered a lot about tawakkul yesterday in reliance one thing that uh one of the summary points from it that we didn't really delve into yesterday is that you know when a person asks like well what exactly is tawakkul, like reliance in Allah? We understand that everything comes from Allah and we attribute everything to Allah, etc. But one of the main points of tawakkul that we should try to take in is that our reliance in Allah is that Allah Ta'ala will take care of us. Okay? Allah Ta'ala will take care of us. Now, what does that mean? You could argue that a person who's undergoing extreme difficulty, let's say that they have not been able to land a job for three years, could argue that, well, how is Allah taking care of me? I'm going through this difficulty. Or let's say that a person, and I know people, that have like have children and they lose all of their children, right? They see all of their children pass away at a young age. So a person could say, how, how is it Allah's taking care of me? Children are supposed to be the coolness of my eyes. Children are supposed to be those things that keep me going. And what a difficulty it is to lose my child. So you could argue that, well, how is, how is it that I can have tawakkud in Allah? You're saying that Allah Ta'ala will take care of me. It's not that, it's that Allah Ta'ala's, what real tawakkud is that you trust that Allah Ta'ala is going to be true to His promise, right? Like that this world isn't just a facade that is going to end and there's no hereafter. We trust that what Allah Ta'ala has told us about this world and what Allah Ta'ala has told us about the akhirah is indeed true. That's what reliance in Allah is. That no matter what I go through in this world, there's going to be an akhirah. Because, you know, the, the, on the flip side, the argument is that, you know what, you Muslims, you guys just, you know, you're worshipping Allah, you're sacrificing for Allah, you're enduring all this difficulty for Allah, you're fasting 30 days in the month of Ramadan. How do you know there's actually a hereafter for you to be rewarded, right? So how, how do you know there's actually going to be a jannah that you're going to receive this reward? And how do you know that you're putting all this effort to sacrifice for Allah uh, you know, how do you know you're going to actually get rewarded for it? You know, and many a times, you know, younger people that have doubts about their faith, this is where that doubt is. That like, why am I doing all this? Ultimately, this is just a big nothing anyway. So true reliance in Allah Ta'ala is that you appreciate that no matter what, Allah Ta'ala's word is true 
and there is an akhirah. Like, I trust that he's, this world is not a, just a big deception. You know, one person could argue that, you know what, um, Allah Ta'ala is promising for the believers Jannah, and for those people that don't believe and people that transgress against him, at least initially, they'll be in Jahannam. You know, what if Allah Ta'ala changes his mind and he just sends everybody to Jahannam because he's in charge and he can do what he wants. Right? But no, we have tawakkud in Allah and reliance in Allah Ta'ala that despite him having the ability to do whatever he wants, he's made promises to us that he's going to give us an akhirah that's pleasing to us if we, if we work toward it. He's not just going to deceive us and laugh at us in the Day of Judgment and say, you know what, you put all that effort in, you, why did you wasted your time, you're all going to Jahannam anyway. You know? So that's, what, that's a different level of tawakkul that we have to appreciate. Does that make sense? Okay. So those are the two points from last time. So today, we're going to talk about mahabba. The eighth principle is love, which is mahabba. Um, this is a very lengthy chapter. So it, this, compared to any of the other sections, this is going to be a little bit more, um, you could say, explanation and uh, a bit more tangential than rather than just going through from cover to, from, from page to the end, from, from beginning to end. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, يُحِبُّهُمْ وَيُحِبُّونَهُ He loves them and they love him. Oh, sorry, uh, Allah Ta'ala says, يُحِبُّهُمْ وَيُحِبُّونَهُ He loves them and they love him. And, قُلْ إِنْ كَانَ آبَاؤُكُمْ وَأَبْنَاؤُكُمْ وَإِخْوَانُكُمْ وَأَزْوَاجُكُمْ وَعَشِيرَتُكُمْ وَأَمْوَالٌ اِقْتَرَفْتُمُوهَا وَتِجَارَةٌ تَخْشَوْنَ كَسَادَهَا وَمَسَاكِنُ تَرْضَوْنَهَا أَحَبَّ إِلَيْكُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ Say, if your fathers, your sons, your brothers, your spouses, your family, wealth that you have acquired, commerce for which you fear loss, or homes which you are pleased with are more beloved to you than Allah and His Messenger. Okay. The Prophet ﷺ said, None of you believe until Allah Ta'ala and His Messenger ﷺ are more beloved to Him than anything besides them. I'll repeat it. The Prophet ﷺ said, None of you believe, none of you truly believe until Allah Ta'ala and His Messenger are more beloved to Him than anything besides them. Now, we we mentioned this um, a couple of nights ago also, that Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَشَدُّ حُبَّ لِلَّهِ that the people who believe, those people who believe, they are shadid, they are intense, they are they are intense, you can say, in their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, it isn't that uh, Allah ta'ala said that people who believe, you should love Allah, right? He could have said, if you believe, love Allah, or uh, those of you that believe, you should love Allah. He actually uh, says that the people that believe, in order to be a true believer, essentially, is what Allah is saying. In order to be a true believer, the people who believe, one of your signs is that you love Allah. Meaning, on the other hand, if you do not feel that you have in your heart a love for Allah, you're only driven by other qualities, for instance, but not love for Allah, that means that uh, belief is lacking. Your belief is lacking. He, Sallallahu also said, Love for Allah, all that He has, He provides for you, and love for love me for the love of Allah. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq said, Whoever has tasted pure love of Allah, it prevents him or her from seeking material things and isolates him from all of mankind. Okay. Um, so Imam Ghazali then goes into this section where he says, The meaning of something that is beloved. Uh, what does it mean to be beloved? Right? Allah Ta'ala is our beloved. What does it mean to be beloved? Which is mahbub in, in Arabic. Know that pleasure is a consequence of perception, and that perception is of two types, 
external and internal. As for external perception, it is through the five senses. The pleasure of the eye is in beholding beautiful forms. The pleasure of the ear is in hearing a, a melodious voice. The pleasure of taste and smell is in tasting or smelling an agreeable flavor or aroma. And the pleasure of the body as a whole is in soft touch. The self, meaning the nafs, loves all of these things. That is, it inclines toward them. Okay, so he's saying that there's external perception, there's internal perception. External perception is are the five senses. And each of the five senses has different things that, that, that causes... Uh, that instills within that person a love, right? So for the ear, for instance, it's hearing something that's nice. So you'll love something that sounds good. You'll love something that, that feels good. You'll love something that tastes good. As for internal perception, it is a subtlety. It is a latifa. It is a subtlety found in the heart. Something. Sometimes it's called intellect. Sometimes it is called light. And other times it is called the sixth sense. So internal perception which is what he's getting at, which is essentially like an emotion is different than external. It's not from the outside, it comes from within. It comes from within. Whoever find, um, but the five senses have no share uh, in, for instance, salah. So if a person were to love salah, prayer, it's not going to, it's not going to be through their external senses. There's nothing physically pleasurable about salah. In fact, it might be the opposite, right? It might hurt, your your legs might hurt, your, uh, you, um, your, arms might tire from holding them up for so long your uh, your knees your knees might hurt so um, I don't think it's Salah that's <laughs> is this Salah? Oh, <laughs> it's not Salah just sitting down <laughs> sitting down right 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 uh, but you could apply it to sitting down also like Yaitikah for instance right like why is it so pleasurable uh, I, well let me get to that in a second let's, let's focus on Salah so uh, salah is, is that deed where physically there really is no pleasure. You don't get to eat anything during Salah. In fact, that's the one time where you're forbidden from eating. If you're not fasting, you can eat throughout the entire day or throughout the entire night. But the one time where you are not allowed to eat is during Salah. Uh, you know, you, uh, touching, right? You're not allowed to uh, touch anything, essentially. I mean, you're basically just holding your hands and praying. That's the one time where you're restricted from moving your limbs around however you want to move them. You can move them around however you want the rest of the time. So you're actually restricting the five senses. So how is it that you can have a love for Salah? It's because it's an internal pleasure. Same thing with what we mentioned Eratikaf. You know, when you sit in the masjid for 10 days, it's not easy. You're restricting yourself, especially when you're fasting. But even if you're not fasting, you're restricted from all of those things. I mean, there's nothing here to touch that you could say, oh, this feels great. You can't listen to those things that you enjoy listening, that you may have enjoyed listening to outside. You're physically, your body aches, your knees hurt, your back's starting to hurt. People are in Artikaf and they're sick, you know, and they're like, you know, in any, any other circumstance, if you were sick, you'd basically just go home and rest, right? There's no pleasure in, in feeling sick at least externally. So why is it that we make such a tremendous sacrifice to stay in Allah's house for 10 days? It's because there's a love within us that's actually driving us, that makes you, do, makes you subdue the external difficulties uh, so that you may experience an internal pleasure. And so then it keeps bringing you back. So whoever finds pleasure through the five senses alone is a dumb beast, a behemoth in Arabic. For dumb beasts, which basically is, means an animal, it's a type of animal that has no control, which are, are most animals, but for behemoth, they, they also find pleasure uh, through them. It is 
discriminating inter- it is his discriminating internal vision that makes a human being special. Thus the pleasure of external vision is in beholding forms of external beauty, and the pleasure of internal vision is beholding forms of internal beauty. So he's basically saying that if you are someone who's only pleased by the external, you're equivalent to an animal. If you're someone deeper, which is what the purpose of the human being is, is to have more than just animalistic desires, then you're going to find pleasure in other things. Now, what those other things are going to be, that, you know, that, that, will, de- that will depend on the individual person. But for the purposes of this section, it would be that, that internal love is for the sake of Allah. Um, okay. I'm going to... Fast forward through a couple of these sections, inshallah. <clears throat> okay. So, Imam Ghazali, to help you understand, to help us understand what it means to love Allah Ta'ala, he basically, uh, explain, he basically uses this notion that every human being loves someone else. Every human being has love for someone else in their heart. So, this idea that if you love someone, if you, ha- if you have the ability to love someone else, then you must love Allah. Now, some people lack in this ability, right? They're, they have some either behavioral or personality issues and it prevents them from actually expressing love and feeling love. And those are very rare, but the vast majority of human beings, we, we love at least one person. So he gives the example, for instance, if you love a scholar or you love a teacher, well, then you should absolutely love Allah because Allah Ta'ala it has far more than them in this way, this way, and that way. Okay, so this is, so I'm bringing you up to where he is now. So he says, you will realize that none besides the one, capital O, the one, the truth, capital T, is holy. Any other than him is not free from faults or deficiencies. Rather, being a slave is the greatest kind of deficiency. What perfection does one without self-sufficiency have? One without any authority over life or death, time or provision. Meaning that if you think that if you think that someone else is deserving of your love more than Allah Ta'ala, well, what sort of a person is it that you're loving? Do they really have any abilities and what sort of function do they have? Or are they like any other human being? Human beings are deficient by their nature. So what you're basically doing is you're loving something that's deficient when you have something that's perfect that you can love. Why would you choose what's deficient over something that's actually perfect or a being that's perfect? So he says, rather being a slave, being being a human being, the human being that you have a love for, whoever that may be, is the greatest kind of deficiency. What perfection does one without self-sufficiency have? One without any authority over life or death, time or provision? What knowledge does one have who cannot fully comprehend his or her condition in sickness or in health have? Like when you're ill, when you're sick, you can't, um, or when someone's ill or someone's sick, they can't even comprehend what sort of illness they have. How much effort goes into determining what sort of a disease a person has? You go into the hospital and you have flu-like symptoms and you have to get admitted to the hospital. Guaranteed, $20,000 is going to be spent there. Trying to figure out what you have and, uh, or let's say you have a rare disease or a rare illness. We're talking about at least $100,000 or $200,000 spent. And in certain cases, a half a million spent in trying to figure out what you have. All the time spent trying to determine what you have. What, what, uh, what not, we don't even have knowledge about the simplest of diseases. And yet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-knowing, knows everything. How could you love a person without loving Allah Ta'ala? Um, one who does not know the details, meaning uh, how could you love a person? He's basically talking about how weak human beings are. He's continuing this. How could you love a person who does not know the details of his internal organs or how they truly function? <laughs> 
How how can how does one sorry how could you love a person one who does not know the details of his internal organs or how they truly function? Despite the advances that we've made a thousand years after Imam Ghazali rahimahullah, we still know very little about internal organs. Our knowledge is very limited. We have we appreciate certain aspects of physiology, but we're so far behind. We're so far behind. We don't know so much about each individual organ that's within within us. You take your organ, take your pick, take your pick, and billions of dollars of research on each organ is being spent every single year. Why? Because we just don't know. We just don't know. So Allah Ta'ala knows every fine detail about every organ at a macroscopic level, level at a microscopic level, at a cellular and subcellular level. He knows every detail about every single organ. How could you love a human being that's deficient and not love Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala? So, okay, then he says, not to mention that human beings, we don't know the unseen realms of the heaven and the earth. We don't even understand the seen world properly. Right? What we see, what's apparent, this current dunya and all the facets of this dunya, the average human being and actually collectively human beings don't even have an appreciation for, for it. We have, a, we have very little knowledge of it, let alone the unseen. No human being has ever seen Jannah. No human being has ever seen, I mean the Prophet no human being has ever seen Jahannam. No human being has ever seen the Day of Judgment. No human being has ever seen an angel. I mean, exception being the, the prophets, right? But no human being has ever seen these things. How could you have a love for a human being who's so deficient on all these levels and yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge of everything is so deep, we, it would behoove us to have a love for him, him as well. So what he, Imam Ghazali is highlighting through all of this is that, the, which is kind of the first step, because so oftentimes people ask, well, what is it that I need to do in order to bring the love for Allah Ta'ala in my heart? Because love is an emotion, it's not something you can force yourself to do. You can't say, okay, now I need to love, okay, I'm just going to love. You can't do that, right? If you bring, like, I have, uh, uh, you know, I have three kids. If I bring in my four-year-old daughter right here and I say, okay, all of you need to love her the way I love her, it just wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't be possible. She, uh, there's an attachment, an affinity that I have with her, and it's taken four years to develop, at least four years to develop. You know, there's a lot of interactions that were at play. There's a degree of knowledge that I have of her that no one else in this room has, an understanding and appreciation that I have. Uh, there's no way that you'd be able to do that, right? If you were to bring your child and tell me you need to love them the way I love them, it's just not possible, right? So you can't force someone to love. You can't force your love to. You can't force yourself to love someone. So the first principle of bringing the love of Allah Taala into your heart, as Imam Ghazali is highlighting, is that you have to have a knowledge of Allah. Now we're never gonna know Allah. We will never know Allah. But we know Allah Taala through the attributes that He's given us. So if we want. To love Allah, the first step that we have to take is appreciate His attributes and study them. There's at least 99 or 100 that we know about. And there's obviously many more. If e each individual one, a person could reflect upon and contemplate for, you know, years on end. Right? If you were to take uh, His attribute of Ar-Raziq, right? This title that He's given. The one who gives. And the one who, um, you could say, uh, what's the, what's the trans? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, provides, the one who provides, right? What, how many degrees of provisions are there for human beings, for animals, since the beginning of time until the end of time, different parts of the world? You could reflect upon this for weeks and weeks and weeks, and the more you reflect upon it, 
Uh, the more you study what, what, what ar-razaq is, the more you'll begin to appreciate. Okay? If you were to take uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being al-musawwir, right? The one who um, designs or forms, the one who forms, right? Al-musawwir. <laughs> try to study what that entails, right? And then compare that and compare uh, and, and, and so study that. And Imam Ghazali actually has dedicated uh, texts about the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what is really, what does musawwar really mean? Right? What does it mean? What is al-zahir? You know, what, what does um, uh, al-ghafir really mean? Like, to one who forgives. Right? What does that really mean? So, knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as much as we're able to gain through what He's told us in the Quran and through the prophets that have come before, that's the first step in loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second step in loving Allah ta'ala is that you engage in Allah's remembrance. So there's knowledge and there's action. And the dhikr of Allah, which is the remembrance of Allah ta'ala, is really what brings love into the heart of a believer. So one aspect is you have to know Allah. Now the next question is, well, how do you exercise? It's How do you put that exercise into practice? It's the dhikr and the remembrance of Allah. The more you remember something, the more you're going to love that one thing. The more you remember something actively or make mention of that one thing, the more you're going to love that one thing. If there is, you know, a certain home that you, that you've, this dream house that you've been wanting to purchase, right? The more you spend time looking at it and looking at its pictures and the more times you keep clicking on all the different rooms that it has and you, you know, you, you imagine all of the different ways that you can actually live in there, the more that love is going to build in your heart. Um, so the same way with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The more you remember Allah ta'ala, the more the love of Allah ta'ala will develop in your heart. Then the third step. So the first is knowledge of Allah as much as possible. The second is actively engaging in Allah ta'ala dhikr. And the third is to spend time in the company of people that love Allah. That is That reflexively will have an effect on your own heart as well. You know, if you spend time, and I say this because uh, I, I've had, my experience is, is different. I mean, I've, alhamdulillah, spent time in the company of people that love Allah, and I can feel the effects of that. But I've spent time in the company of people that love other things as well, and I've, and I've feel, felt the effects of that. You know, for four years, I spent time in the company of people that genuinely love the science of neurology. And so you, I just, you spend all this time in their company and you spend time in their research labs and you spend time in their clinics and you spend time just sitting with them and hearing what they have to say. And sometimes not even just sitting, just walking into their offices and seeing all the journals that are on the wall and all the textbooks that are on the wall. And after four years, that passion also develops in your own heart as well. It's just because you exposed yourself to them and what's driving them and what they're passionately driven by. So in the same way, if you spend time in the company of the people that love Allah Ta'ala, and the effect of that will be that you too will begin to love Allah and a passion will grow in your heart for the love of Allah. So the first is knowledge of Allah. The second is that you uh, engage in Allah Ta'ala's remembrance regularly and abundantly. You know, how abundantly? It's, it's hard to know. Allah Ta'ala in this Quran says, Ya dhikran kathira, That you should just remember Him abundantly. Abundantly. Okay, and then the third is that you spend time in the company of the people that actually love Allah, the muhibbin, the people that love Allah Ta'ala. They have a deep muhabba in their hearts you will most certainly feel the effects of it. Most certainly you will feel the effects of, of this third aspect. Okay. Let's continue. Um, let's uh, talk about... Okay. Uh, the, the, let's go to the last section. So, Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, has a section. The last section is some of the signs of love. Okay. So, we talked about how you attain love for Allah, mahabba. 
but then oftentimes people want to know, well, how is it that I know that Allah's love is in my heart? How do I know? I've, I've taken some steps that you've mentioned. I've engaged in Allah's remembrance. I've studied the attributes of Allah. And I've spent time in the company of people that love Allah. So how do I know I'm making progress? Where am I? How do I know that Allah Ta'ala's love is in my heart? So Imam Ghazali says, Know that love for Allah has many signs which it would take quite a long time to list. From amongst its signs, so there's many, but he's going to list off a few of them. From amongst its signs is putting Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala's command before the whims of the ego. Okay. Um, before the whims of the ego, protecting oneself through piety and paying close attention to the limits set by sacred law. Okay, so what Imam Ghazali Rahimahullah is saying is that it's clear when you love someone, you often you you like to do things that make them happy. If you like to do things that make Allah Taala happy, that's a sign that you love Allah. Let's say you fall in love with someone, right? You fall in love with some girl or something, and uh, you you then will want to do whatever makes her happy, right? She says that you know what? Uh, I was thinking we can go get some ice cream right now. That's it. You're gone. You're you're already walking towards your car. You don't you don't think twice. You don't think twice. You immediately uh, take that opportunity. Uh, and that's what happens when love overcomes a person. So if you love Allah Ta'ala, you don't think twice for an opportunity to please Him. You, when your nafs has to choose between two things, you choose that thing that's more pleasing to Allah and you su suppress that thing that's less pleasing to Allah. If you find in your life that you have this tendency, it's a sign that you love Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And you pay close attention to the limits set by sacred law, by the sharia. You pay close attention to the boundaries of the sharia. Meaning, uh, the sharia has certain boundaries. And you can think about it almost from the perspective of there, this boundary that I cannot cross and this boundary that's more pleasing. There's an inner circle and an outer circle. And in between the inner and the outer circle is basically the path of fatwa. And if you stay within the inner circle, it's a path of taqwa. Taqwa meaning that path is closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, a true lover of Allah ta'ala will always aim to stay within the path of taqwa rather than go toward the path of fatwa. What's the difference? The path of taqwa is that path that you are for sure certain without a doubt that this is what's pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? And these are principles of sharia in particular. And the path of fatwa is that there's a little bit of leeway. If you need to go to that extent, you can go to that extent. But the lovers of Allah ta'ala, they stay within taqwa because they don't want to go near the boundary of Allah. If the boundary of Allah is here, they want to stay here. They want to stay here. So that's a sign of the true lovers of Allah. So uh, the Prophet says in the hadith, choose that which is uh, clear to you, which is less doubtful to you. Sorry, choose that which is, yeah. Uh, leave that, sorry, leave that which is doubtful for you to where, and, and, and rather choose that which is not doubtful for you. Which means that you stay away from the boundaries of Allah. If there's anything that causes doubt in your heart, you leave it. If there's anything that causes doubt, you know, in terms of should I do this, should I not, it's better that you leave it. Now, the attitude of someone who loves Allah Ta'ala is they're questioning chains, changes. You know, many a times people like to ask the question when they're trying to learn more about their deen, they'll ask, um, is, it, is it okay for me to do this? Is it okay for me to do this? Or they'll ask the question, uh, it's not haram, is it? It's not haram, is it? Now, if these two questions predominate, your, you know, predominate within you, then that's, that, that indicates um, that, you're, that you're lacking in your love for Allah. 
If on the other hand, your questioning is always, what would be most pleasing to Allah in this situation? Or, what would be the preferred method according to the Sunnah of the Prophet Then that shows that you have a love for Allah because you don't want to go near the boundaries of Allah. People that always ask, is it haram to do this? It's not haram, is it? Why are you preventing me? It's not haram. That shows that, okay, well, I'm trying to go very close to the boundary is what I'm, what I'm basically saying. But if a person's preferred question is, is what, what's better for me? You know, you know people often ask, is, it's not, is it haram to listen to music? Right? Well, so let's say that's the boundary. Well, why don't you ask, what's the best thing to listen to? Right? That would be the better question for someone who loves Allah. Uh, you know, somebody might ask, you know, is it, uh, is it okay for me to uh, watch movies? Right? Is it okay for me to watch movies? Well, why are you asking that question? Because you're, what you're saying is, is it okay for me to go to this boundary? Now, whether you're on this side of the boundary or that side of the boundary, it's a different discussion. Whether it's halal or haram, let's put that aside. Why do you want to go near the boundary? Ask, what is it, what, how, what's the best way that I can entertain myself? What would be the way the Prophet would entertain himself? Right? So if these types of questions predominate, the questions that lead you toward the path of taqwa, rather than teetering with fatwa, then that's a sign that the love of Allah Ta'ala predominates in your heart. Make sense? Okay, so it's not, I'm not saying which questions you should ask. I'm saying evaluate, assess yourself, and say what questions do I tend to ask when I meet my ulama or when I meet the scholars or when I'm seeing the imam of the masjid or I see somebody of deen, what questions do I tend to ask? That can help determine if you are driven by Allah Ta'ala's love or you're driven by something else. Okay, he says, uh, uh, among is signs, okay, so the next sign, so the first sign is that, the second sign, among is signs, is longing to meet Allah and not having any aversion toward death unless one longs for additional knowledge. Okay, so longing to meet Allah. That's a sign that you love Allah. You know, um, many, most of us, uh, we're afraid of death because of many reasons. It's by its nature, it's something that instills fear within us. We're afraid in particular about our own death. You know, if other people in the community pass away, it does affect us, it does phase us. We make the offer them, we're worried about their time in the grave, we're worried about their barzakh, we're worried about the day of judgment. But when we begin to think about death ourselves, it instills a fear within us. We're very fearful of it. And that's part of human nature, and it's okay to have that. But on the flip side, uh, the Prophet said in a hadith, تُحْفَةُ الْمُؤْمِنِ الْمَوْتُ that the death of the believer, sorry, the gift of the believer is death. So how is the gift of the believer death? Now, ulama give a few explanations for this, and I think we've talked about this once before. But one explanation is that this world is a prison for the believer. And the akhirah is when the believer can be rewarded. Now, while a person spends time in this world, they can't indulge. In fact, they're just completely restricted. The akhirah is that place where they can actually feel unrestricted. So that's why the gift for the believer is death, because that's actually the time where they can enjoy. This place has just been basically a challenge. Okay. Now, what's the best enjoyment in the hereafter? You know, Jannah has many pleasures. We've read its descriptions. We've heard it. In Jannah, you can do what you want. You can see what you want, eat what you want, play with what you want. Whatever you want to do, you can do in Jannah. There's no restriction whatsoever. But the greatest reward in Jannah, or otherwise said, the greatest pleasure of Jannah, without a doubt, without a doubt, the greatest pleasure in Jannah, it's from hadith, is that time when the person will be able to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah ta'ala will be so clear, it'll be as if it, uh, it looks as if you're looking at the full moon. That'll be the greatest pleasure in Jannah. No pleasure will compare to it. Now, um, so because that's the greatest pleasure, and because we've been striving through this world to just please Allah, 
we should have in our heart a longing to meet Allah. And we, we've... Um, You know, we've made so much sacrifice in this world. We've thought about Allah. We've put an effort toward Allah. We see the effects of Allah Ta'ala's protection over us and what He's done for us and the mere fact that He created us when He didn't need to create us, the mere fact that He's sustaining us when there's no reason He needs to sustain us, and the mere fact that He's blessed us when there's no nothing binding on Allah Ta'ala to continue to bless us. This being, we should have a desire to meet. I mean, this is our Allah. And we know from hadith, it's the greatest pleasure that we'll experience. So part of a person's love for Allah, or an indication, you know, kind of this litmus test of how deeply do I love Allah, is that in the heart of the believer, there's this passion or this longing. The best word is longing. This longing to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This longing should be within our hearts. Okay. Now, there's also going to be obviously fear of his punishment and fear of the possibility of going to Jahannam. But, you know, how we covered before the section of fear and we covered hope. We talked about fear and hope. We should have hope that Allah Ta'ala will take care of us, inshallah, in the hereafter. And we should have hope that Allah Ta'ala's promise is true and that all of us, since we're in a state of Iman today and we're collecting for his sake today, inshallah on the Day of Judgment, he'll give us the opportunity, inshallah in the Akhirah, he'll give us that opportunity and that blessing to be able to see him. So we should long for that. Amongst his signs um, is contentment with divine decree and what Allah Ta'ala has predetermined. So the third thing that he mentions is that you're content with the predetermined predetermination of Allah Ta'ala. You know, we ac we accept that what comes from what comes in this world is from Allah Ta'ala's will. And accepting that is a sign of your love for Allah. And how do we know we're not accepting of that? When we ask the question, why? When you ask why, not why so that you can assess and evaluate a circumstance you're working on, but why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? That's a very dangerous question to ask because it indicates a challenge toward Allah Ta'ala. So he says, we will therefore mention the meaning of contentment so, uh, so that a person is not deluded by the passing thoughts that occur to himself thinking that they are the reality of having love for Allah for indeed that is something very powerful so the next section is actually going to be contentment with divine decree so inshallah we'll go over that in more detail tomorrow so may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fill our hearts with his love may Allah ta'ala make us regular and consistent in our, and abundant in our dhikr and our remembrance of him and may he grant us the tawfiq to spend time in the company of people who love him may he grant he, may he bless this community and the communities around with people that love him so that we may benefit from their company. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant uh, us all uh, grant us all uh, uh, um, an interaction with them in the hereafter. Wa akhirada wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.